Today's scripture is Philippians 1, 1 through 18. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with all the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, But thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. Thanks, Allison. All right. Well, good morning again, everybody. My name's Sean. If I don't know you, um, I'm the lead pastor, teach us here for uh, Redemption Peoria. Redemption Peoria is part of Redemption Church which is nine different congregations spread throughout the state of Arizona. Now, um, Josh acknowledged that there's a lot of little ones in here. If you're not aware, uh, four times a year we do a family Sunday, which means uh, uh, we do child care for those of you who would like it for children five and under. uh, But those who are old enough to sit in the service, uh, we we ask them to sit in. And honestly, a lot of this is just development, not just um, as families that we come together, but as a church we recognize who's part of our church. It's never uh, the adults are in here and that's the church and there's the kids in the back and they're just here because they or, I don't know, living in our home for free. Um, It's not like that, okay? Now, here's what I'm going to say. So, I preach, uh, I usually, on Sundays, in the the primary teaching pastor, uh, besides about 12 to 15 times a year, okay? And during those times, if I don't have a meeting, say, with one of you guys during a second service, or um, have a meeting between, or whatever it is, or something that I need to do, I find myself in the kids' ministry. So I try to volunteer as much as I can between three to five times a year in there. And I've done all the way from, like, little babies, like the baby babies, all the way to the oldest class, okay? And what I found with the demographic that is in here, as far as kids go, is that for the most part, I don't have the authority 
right, that I have with my kids. With my kids, I can go, you need to do it or else. And they know what or else means, right? We all have a different or else, apparently, in our homes, okay? And so, so what I do is to get them when it comes time to uh, calm them down and listen to what Penny and Parker need to hear um, and what Penny and Parker are going to walk us through, I show them, um, and I'm going to call it an optical illusion, it's not a magic trick, because from where I come from, it's like getting an uptime, upside down cross tattooed on your arm if it's a, you do magic. So it's not a magic trick. I do optical illusion. So, uh, Joe, would you bring, mind bringing Thomas up here uh, for me, please? That would be great. Come on up here. So what I'm going to do, you may think this is silly, but for those who are about 5 to 11 years old, I'm about to be a hero, okay? Um, now, here's, here's my promise. Those of you who are younger in here, okay, you're going to have to listen to me yell for 40 minutes, and that's rough. That's super rough. That's what your mom and dad's class is every single week. But I will bribe you with an optical illusion, okay? So I have here, Joe, a pair of keys. Thomas, you see these keys, okay? These are normal keys. I'm going to take these keys, and I'm going to rub them in my arm and make them disappear. Now, Thomas, go ahead and feel the keys. Go ahead. They're real. Real keys. Joe, you're in finance. You're brass tacks. Those are real keys, right? They're real keys. Okay, these are real keys. Now, now I got... Oh, sorry. Okay. Now, I'm going to take these keys again. And as I take them, I'm going to... Thomas, I'm going to make them go in my arm. Okay? I'm going to make these disappear from my arm. One, two, three. Whoa. Crazy, right? Now, you're wondering, where are the keys? You're, so many of you are wondering, where are the keys? Here's what's crazy. The whole time... Check this out, Thomas. The whole time... They're behind your dad's ears. Weird. You can take a seat. Thank you very much for that. You guys, it's serious. Serious business, okay? Now, I got to get my sermon real quick. And, okay, so let's do that real quick. Set this up. Okay, so. (laughs) I'm so cool. You guys have no idea. Now, I've done all these tricks to my own children a hundred times, so they think I'm nothing, but... Uh, all right, here's, here's where we are at for everybody. Um, and kids, you guys are going to be going through a really cool summer curriculum, and your moms and dads are going to be going through a book in the Bible called Philippians. I'm going to pray for us, pray for our time in Philippians. It's going to be nine weeks that we're going to spend in the book of Philippians, and I'm, I'm honestly really excited about this, uh, because of the nine weeks, you will hear from all five elders during those nine weeks, okay? So I'm going to preach the first two, and then the following week, you're going to hear from Tim, and then there's going to be uh, consecutive uh, elders from that point. So really excited about that, and that's important because of the nature of what Philippians is and how relational it is, which I'll explain here in a second. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dive in. I'll give you a little bit of background as to what we can expect from the book of Philippians, okay? Jesus, thanks so much for who you are, um, as silly as an optical illusion may be. Um, yeah, there's, there's a joy that we have apart from, uh, yeah, just being silly that we have in you. Even moments of dire need and suffering, we have a joy that's in you that we can't really explain. Uh, and it's a hope that is... Uh, stored up for us. Uh, We don't fully understand or comprehend at times, but I would pray that the book of Philippians would move us towards that hope, move us towards that hope, move us towards that hope, that we'd be reminded of you, Jesus Christ, that it's about you, it's your kingdom when we are citizens of it. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's where we are in the book of Philippians. Um, 
if you go back to the book of Acts in chapter 16, we actually get the start and the context of the book of Philippians. Now, I'm going to explain this here in a second, but Paul's writing this letter from prison, okay? So if you go back to Acts 16, here's what you're going to find. Paul and his entourage, specifically Paul and this guy named Silas, go into Philippi, and they go to this place of prayer. We don't know if it's a real synagogue or not. We have no idea, but they go into this place of prayer, and they begin to pray with these people, specifically with these women. And as they begin to engage with these women, that these women, there's one woman in particular that the, the scriptures unearth a little bit. Her name is Lydia. She's this woman who works with purple goods. And scripture is pretty clear that God opens her heart to hear what Paul is saying. He begins to continue to interact with Lydia. And Lydia's house ends up becoming the site for the first house church in Philippi. You can read all of this in Acts 16. Now, there's a few um, other encounters that take place that you need to be aware of because Paul's connection to these people uh, in, in the book of Philippians is a little bit different. Honestly, I, I would say even a little bit more than in the other epistles like Galatians or First uh, Corinthians or uh, um, uh, Colossians. Like it's a little bit different. And, and it's not just because of Lydia, but let me give you another uh, encounter. There's this moment where uh, uh, Paul is kind of roaming around in Philippi, and there's this, this slave girl, this girl who's been subjected to slavery, and she is filled with a demon to foresee the future. She, she uh, tells people what's going to happen. She's this fortune teller. Paul ends up rescuing her by the power of Jesus Christ from this demon, and then this demon leaves her. Well, her owners, the ones who've subjugated her in slavery, are not happy about this because she's been bringing them money. People are paying them to see her, to give her the, the ability to see, to look into uh, to the future. It's this really bizarre story. So they're super upset. They grab Paul and Silas and they bring them to the authorities. This is actually what it says um, about them. This is what those men who are upset at Paul and Silas for. Uh, taking away uh, a form of income. It says, these men are disturbing our city. You can read this in Acts 16. These men are disturbing our city. They are Jews and are advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to adopt or observe. So Paul and Silas are then uh, flogged and then put in prison. Now, something else you need to be aware of. While in prison, Paul and Silas are there and uh, it's about midnight. They're chained up. And they start singing, most likely all glory be to Christ. And as they're singing, as they're singing, the, the jail, the prison begins to shake. There's an earthquake and they are set free from their bonds. Okay. The guard who's watching the door, who, who's supposed to be watching over Paul and Silas knows because of this earthquake, they're probably gone. They're probably out, which means terrible suffering for him. He's going to be tortured because he lost the prisoners he was overseeing. He begins to try to kill himself. He takes a sword. He's going to kill himself. But in that moment, Paul says, don't, don't do that. We're still here. Don't worry. We haven't gone anywhere. The guard is so moved with emotion that he ends up going, why would you be here? Why would you have this way of life? Why? And Paul tells him about Jesus. He then is baptized and his entire household are baptized. And immediately in verse 40, what it says is Paul goes and he goes and visits the church, which is most likely this prisoner, this girl, Lydia and their crew in this small house church. He goes there to encourage them. Paul is well aware of the people in Philippi. He's super aware. And the reason that's uh, a big deal is as we read the book of Philippians, 
it feels a little off kilter. If you ever read the book of Philippians, it's not as easy as reading the book of Ephesians, say, because the first three chapters are like this, and then it's these three chapters. It's very linear. If you read the book of Galatians, right, you can see this uh, thread of grace woven through. It's very linear. Philippians feels like Paul's version of James. It feels like spotty, like what's he talking about? And what we're going to find, it all revolves around this section in chapter two that Tim's going to teach us. It all revolves around this idea, and it kind of pushes us towards Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about a lot, but because it's relational, it's kind of like everywhere. So let me start with reading the first couple verses. If you're new to Redemption Peoria, we're just going to go verse by verse. We're going to read through this like a big Bible study together, okay? So this is what it says in verse 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to say from this opening is, number one, this is a pretty common opening. Again, Paul is in prison uh, because he would not bow his knee to Caesar, and he's here. uh, He has this letter sent by this guy named Epaphroditus, who we'll meet uh, later on in the the book. But as he's there, he's writing this letter, and I don't think it's a stretch. I, I might argue it's even probable that the letter, as he writes it, he knows by name, not just some, but most of the people in this church in Philippi. He is very relationally connected. Now, it's not as much as the, the, the book of Galatians or Corinthians. I think historically we can argue there's a tie between Paul and the Philippian church that is, is a little bit different, a little bit more. And because that's true, what I found in this very relational letter, and just give me grace in saying this, is I found myself relating to how Paul felt about that church. I found myself, and I, and I would contend, I would put in front of you how the elders feel about Redemption Peoria. And so here's what I want to do specifically today. As much as I want to, and we will, as a normal text breakdown, I want to get at the tone of the book of Philippians. Like Paul's heart, and I don't get very many opportunities to share pastorally um, in areas like preaching, which we'll get to the end, or um, even just how we feel, our hope for you. We don't get in a lot of that. Maybe we've talked big vision and mission stuff, but just like here it is. Here's our heart towards you. There's three things that Paul says, and you can look at your your Bibles real quick. Look at chapter 3, look at chapter 6, and then look at chapter 9. In chapter 3, Paul first starts with what he's thankful for. And, and I want to explain why Paul's thankful for those things, but I also want to explain what I, what I personally am thankful for and what I believe the elders are thankful for, for our church. That verse 6, you can see um, what Paul is sure of about our church, and I want to share what, we're, what I'm sure of about our church. There's some uh, assurance there. And then you can see in verse 9, ultimately what Paul prays for for this church. I want you to know for, that what we as elders are praying for you as a church, okay? So... That's what we're going to do. That's our main outline. Uh, let's start in verse 3. This is how the letter starts after he gives his introduction. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all, for, I'm sorry, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul starts this letter. He's sending it out with Epaphrodites, and it feels like this mission letter. If you're not familiar with this, what you, uh, this old school idea of a church would send out a missionary, and then they would report back how things are going. Well, this missionary is writing this letter back going, well, here's how things are going, and I want to start first with, I am extremely thankful that we are in partnership together. But, but this is different the way we understand missionaries that we're sending them out. We're just sending our finances. No, Paul, by partnership, it's a familiar word if you grew up in church. It's the word koinia. Um, it, koinia, it's the idea of fellowship, that together we are partnering. I love how uh, Eugene Peterson actually says it. I don't think the Message Bible is a 
particular translation as much as a commentary, but sometimes I think he does well when he says this. This is how Eugene Peterson gives us verses three and four. Every time you come across my mind, I break out an exclamation and thanks to God. Each exclamation is a trigger to prayer. I find myself praying for you all with a glad heart. I am so pleased that you have continued on, the, uh, on in this with us, believing and proclaiming God's message. Paul is, at his core, excited to know there are believers in Philippi that they're doing it. They're out there, they're doing ministry, and they are in partnership together. So let me just get, give you an example. I am so grateful for the last four years, and even prior as we met in our living room, the relationships that have been created. So let me give you an example. Uh, two streets down from where we live, the Carlisles uh, uh, live, Nick and, and Lauren Carlisle. And um, they live on a different street than us, but here's, here's something that you can be aware of. Once a month, me and my kids, and sometimes my wife, if I could talk her into it, we go ding-dong ditch them once a month, right? And as we ding-dong ditch them, we ride away on our tricycle bikes together, okay? And we yell, so Myers House rules, right? Okay, and then we, we ride off. Okay. Now at first it was funny. Then it got annoying. We're hoping we continue to do it and it becomes funny again. Um, but here's what, what, what you could know. My kids, as they get older, will make statements like, remember when we used to blah, 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 with Nick and Lauren, remember how that there is a, there is an involvement of their life, of their childhood that they're going to remember. Oh yeah. Nick and Lauren lived. And here's what I know. I know Nick and Lauren are thinking through the gospel two streets down. This is true for all of the, the, the teachers who are at our kids' school at Maryvale Prep. And at Maryvale Prep, here's all these teachers. I see them. I see Christina as she's announcing to the parents. And I know, listen, you're doing your job right now. And I appreciate it. I'm aware that you are thinking through kingdom theology, the way that the gospel applies to Great Hearts Maryvale. I know you're thinking. And that makes me grateful for how many of you have been in our living room and our kids have been formed. We have been formed as we continue to act with, uh, interact with one another. This is something to be thankful for. And I'm just telling you, myself, and I believe as the elders and the deacons, we're thankful that we get to do this together. My hope is we're doing this for the rest of our life together. Don't leave me. Don't leave me, okay? Be, let's do this together. I, I, I see John Dennison, and I think to myself, as a police officer, like he's thinking through things that I don't have to think through, but I know he's processing the kingdom in his job. And every time I see him, I think, man, let's just grow old together. Let's just grow old together. Let's do this church thing, this family thing. Let, let's do this thing right, and let's do this for the long haul. And that makes me thankful that together we're partnering in the gospel. I don't fully know what it's like your day-to-day for every single person in this room. Hopefully you're in a community where someone does, but hopefully that camaraderie is going cross-pollinating uh, between communities and within a community. And so I just want to start by saying I'm extremely thankful, and I think the tone of what Paul's laying out for the church is, I'm so grateful we're in this together. I know I may be in prison right now, but I know you're out doing the ministry that God has set before you. And that makes me extremely thankful. Which leads to the next thing after what he says he's thankful for. It says this in verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
For God is my witness how I yearn for you. Listen to the relational language again. How I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Something really cool about um, the, the book of Philippians and each section we'll go through. You will hear, if you grew up in church, a famous verse. Like a coffee cup uh, mug verse. So you're you're going to hear one of those verses each section. And, and, and our section, this is a verse that we hear pretty often. And, and I don't think it's actually, this is one of those verses that's quoted pretty often, and I don't think it's taken out of context too much. I think there are moments where it definitely is, but when I hear this, I think it's pretty well used. And it's the, the beginning there in verse 6, the beginning of that next section. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Um, here's what I think Paul's looking, he, he, what is he sure of? He's sure uh, that as he saw a flicker in Lydia, or that jailer, or, or that, that little girl being rescued, uh, from, from the bondage of not just physical slavery, but demonic slavery. There's a flicker, and that flicker that started is something called regeneration. It's a fancy theological term called regeneration, meaning God started something within you. And when God starts that thing within you, what we're told in the rest of the New Testament is we get to interact by the power of the Holy Spirit with what God started within us. That's a fancy theological term called sanctification. Now, what we find is we mess up a lot We have to apologize a lot, and we get it wrong a lot, and our sanctification feels like this. We're moving towards God, but it seems to be up and down. And and because that's true, we can be sure that he who began a good work in us and that we're still continuing to interact, one day it will be made complete. Hear this, one day you will be made perfect. That's a fancy theological term called glorification. That God one day will glorify us because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so uh, this is what we see. Now, um, I think a question has to arise within our congregation, and, and just as you read the letter, how do I know if, if God started a good work within me? How do I know that? And I think that's a, a right, and I think ultimately that's what Paul ends up with this next section laying out. He ends up saying, the next part, uh, that if we can know if he started a good work in us, listen to this uh, in the middle of seven. For you are all partakers with me of grace. I think you could know if God has started a good work if you are a partaker of grace. But this is a problem because how do I know if I partook of grace, okay? So what we end up finding out in this next section is, uh, in this section here, is there are two things that you can know if God started a good work within you. You could know, um, and there are other ways I would argue, but, but the fruit of righteousness that we're going to end up finding, you can see that God started this good work and that one day he will complete it. There's two things that Paul lays out. Number one is suffering for the gospel, and number two is, um, a, uh, the language that he uses is defending or uh, commending the gospel. Now, let me explain what these mean because I think they go hand in hand. Um, this is kind of a rabbit trail, I think, in his text. Paul does this to us all the time, which is pretty frustrating, but track with me if you can. Um, so, how do I say this? If we look at our culture... And as we process what our culture is, and we see that we have a way of life that is different. Now, let me explain that. When Paul uses the term the gospel, he doesn't mean like tell people they're going to, he- uh, they're going to hell so that they can go to heaven. His view of the gospel is bigger. This is the classic, like all of life is all for Jesus, that we believe that the gospel intrudes itself into all of culture. If that's true, if you are really a follower of Jesus Christ, your way of viewing humanity is different than the way that the world views humanity. Hear this. It may sound arrogant if you're not a believer in here, but we really believe we have the way to truly be human. 
Like to truly operate in the confines of following Jesus Christ is the gospel, is, is, is the idea that, that everywhere sin has infiltrated, grace may abound more. And that's business, that's in our family, that's in our home, that's in our neighborhood, it's how we interact. And that means you are operating in culture differently. And if you defend the gospel, if you say this is the right way to live, inevitably you will find yourself in many, M-I-N-I, prisons. You will feel ostracized. And we have this conversation all the time, like, how do I feel persecution? Yeah, you're right. We live in a a country that does not have the wave of persecution, but believe me when I say this, make a stance on the way humanity is supposed to be as the gospel lays it out, and you will feel many prisons. You'll feel many prisons. So uh, just a side tangent, let me give you some examples. I think there's lots of ways that we can acknowledge where the gospel intrudes itself. The idea that um, racism is not okay. The idea that we want to continue to fight against uh, the misuse and abuse of the marginalized. But the reality is I think our culture where we live probably would acknowledge those things as well. So let me just give you three examples that I think if you were to proclaim the gospel, we will find ourselves being persecuted, many in prisons, and we could know that the gospel is really working as we're not standing back afraid, but we stand up for what is true. There, there are three things. I'm not the one who came up with these three things. I, I first heard these three things from Al Walters, and then uh, N.T. Wright brought them up, and I've heard them uh, from a b- bunch of different other people. But there are three things that you can be sure of that are countercultural that the gospel puts in front of as a true way to live. First, the exclusivity of Christ. Second, um, our views on gender role and gender specifics. Three, sexual ethics. Let me let me explain this, and actually, let me explain it to you like I'm explaining it to the kids in the room, okay? So maybe that will help, because I, I don't want to miss this. First, this. Um, so I'll explain this as if I'm explaining it to my six-year-old. Little kids in the room, listen to me very carefully. Raise your hand if you're in school right now. If you're in kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. Raise your hand. Don't be shy. You're in school. Good job, okay? Even homeschool. Yes, that counts as school too, okay? Okay, look at me very closely. Listen, listen. As you make more and more friends as you grow up, Here's what you're going to find. They're going to tell you because their moms and dads believe something different that we all can just believe what we want and it's okay. That as long as your friend believes in this and you believe what you believe, that's okay. We're we're all kind of right. Let me tell you, uh, let me be very clear. All of those other beliefs, every word, when you hear words like Mormonism and you hear words like Jehovah's Witness and, and, and uh, Muhammad and Allah, when you hear uh, spirituality that you kind of follow your own way, when you hear things, anything but Jesus Christ is the only right way. He's the only way. Hear me. This is, and I, I'll let your parents flesh this out. There are demonic, powerful forces behind all of those other beliefs. There is another spiritual force tricking your mom and dad's friends. They're tricking your mom and dad and they're, 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 they don't know. And so hear me, our job is to put in front of them because we love them to see the way the world is. And that doesn't mean be mean. That doesn't mean just say, oh, you believe that, you're dumb. That's not what we do, right? Church, the, the, our, our grandparents did that for a while. We're gonna try to avoid that, okay? But hear me, but it is our job when we see a way of life that's not right to go, well, what about this way? To put the true way, Jesus as the only way, in front of them. All other ways are false. All other ways are false. Even kind of Jesus ways are not Jesus ways. Only Jesus is the way. The exclusivity of Christ. We will experience many prisons 
but that is part of the gospel interaction. Number two, I'll talk to you still as kids. Um, as you grow up, you'll find that there are um, sometimes moms and moms and dads and dads, and that's a different conversation. I'll let your parents explain that more. But more so, when you see moms and dads together and you hear how women should act and how men should act, you're going to notice something. That's sometimes not the way that your mom and dad act, and that's not the way that you read the Bible, and the Bible tells uh, 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 certain men or boys and women or girls that the way that they should act. But the Bible gives a clear way that here's for men and here's for women. And they are equal. No one is better than anyone else, but they're not the same. They're equal, but they're not the same. And God made, if you're a little girl in here, he made you a girl. He gave you gifts to be a girl. If you're a boy in here, he made you a boy. He gave you gifts to be a boy. And maybe there's thoughts and processes that you've got to go through. And that's not always easy. But hear me when I say this. God has made you the way you are. And he loves you. And he has specific roles for genders. And, and your friends and our culture, and eventually when your parents, hopefully not now, let you on social media, you will find that the world does not agree with that. And then the last thing is sexual ethic. And I'll let your parents explain that. Okay? <laughs> I, to the parents, I will say this. I don't just mean sexual or homosexuality either. I mean, there is a sexual ethic and processing that we will experience that. So all that to say, I think that's the train of thought that Paul gives us. The train of thought that Paul gives us says, we begin a good work. We know that we have begun a good work if we're a partaker of grace. We know we're a partaker of grace. If that we commend and defend the gospel, we will experience some type of suffering. And we can know we do that in our certain context by defending these truths of the gospel. I'm not saying those are our main pillars of faith. Hear me. If you're not believing here, I'm not saying that's the main deal. I'm saying those are the most countercultural things right now we will experience as a church okay long rabbit trail but you get the idea let's keep going got uh, about 15 more minutes with us and then finally verse 9 it says this it says this is my prayer so we started first with what paul's thankful for then we got into what we're sure of that god started to work within us and he will complete it and now we get what ultimately paul prays for this church and then what we as elders pray for you for as a church it says this it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Okay, let's go through this because this is really, really cool. This is what I hope for myself, for my kids, and for every single one of you. Listen to the train of thought. It's awesome. Listen to the train of thought. The first thing that Paul prays for is that love may abound more and more. What a simple, stupid, simple concept. Love. 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 This is what Jesus bases everything on. I don't care how masculine you think you are. Love. Love, love, love. If we were to use Paul's very definition in 1 Corinthians, uh, we would see that the hope in loving, would we would be more patient. We would be more kind. We would be less envious. We would be less boastful. We would be less proud. We would honor each other more. We would be less and less self-seeking. We would get less angry. We would hold less grudges. And we would rejoice more in the truth. That love would abound more and more. But here's what's crazy. Sentence structure-wise, in the Greek, we can't just say love may abound more and more, comma, with knowledge and all discernment. This is a, 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 a... kind of a separating of what I think is argued in the sentence structure of a melding together, meaning to love, for love to abound more and more, you can't separate knowledge and discernment. Love abounding more and more 
inevitably leads to knowing more and more. So let me say it like this. You cannot love something without knowing it. You can't love something and want to know it more. That's not possible. You can know something and not love it. But if you love something, you will want to know more and more about it. Which speaks to a culture all over us that you just, you love Jesus. Jesus looks a lot like you in our, our Christian church cultures. The kind of like, the, the, the shallow levels of like, yeah, I follow Jesus. Like, what's the problem? But you don't want to know him more and more. Now, follow the train of thought here. Look at this. Love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment. If you love, you will know more so that you may approve what is excellent. Okay, so today marks 13 years for Candace and I that we've been married. 13 years. Yep. Okay, I was... Nice. All right. Um, I always... Anyway. Okay, so... So, so 13 years, here's what I can tell you, um, of the 13 years, and we've been together for how long, Cass? Like, I don't know, hundred years or something forever. Uh, we're high school sweethearts. So we were together probably five years before that. So like 18 or 19 years together. Here's what I can tell you. Um, I cannot love Candace and not want to know more about her. Meaning, if I love her, I want to find out the things that make her happy and find out the things that upset her. That is me finding ways what she approves of and what she likes and what she doesn't like. And so when I talk in a certain way or, or how I interact in a certain way or when I leave a mess or whatever it is, I have over the course of 13 or 18 years, at least 13 years living together, I have over the course found out what she approves of and what she doesn't approve of. If I didn't love her, I wouldn't be looking into those things. I would be selfish. I would be self-seeking. I would do what I want to do. But because I love her, I want to find out what makes her happy. Do you understand? What Christianity is and what our prayer for you is and what Paul is praying for this church is, is ultimately the idea that I want you to love more and more and more. And as you love, you're going to notice something you want to know more about. And as you know more about, you're going to find out what Jesus does and does not want, what he approves of. So let me explain it like this. If you have love as a noun, it will inevitably continue to lead into knowing more, which will lead to love as a verb. You will continue to rearrange your life, your thoughts, um, your, your interactions with people around how Jesus wants you to do it. You will, in a nutshell, just because the language is there, will, you will be able to approve what is excellent. And, and, and you will find out, oh, I know more about Jesus, and it's not this way. Oh, I see this is what he wants, and it's not this way. If you really love him, you will seek knowledge and discernment. If you seek knowledge and discernment, you will find what Jesus does and does not want. We don't get to choose that. Jesus has chosen that. Which leads to, watch the last domino fall, and so be, sure, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Um, this will lead to, this is what's crazy. Um, we get caught in a culture and we get caught in a sin. We feel like we can't get out. And I get that. There is this like, why do I do the things I do not want to do uh, a part of Christianity? But in our sanctification, the only way we're really growing up and the prayer for, from us as elders uh, to God about you is that as you grow in your sanctification, you would see God more and more. You would know what he want more and more. And you'd be moving towards the cross, towards the resurrection of Jesus day by day. And hear me, that is the path of blamelessness. It's not because you're awesome. It's not because you got it right, because remember, if you would go your own path, if you would do your own philosophies, you would be terrible. All you're doing is stealing Christ's ideas. That's all you're doing. You, you, you can, from the outside, look, that guy lives a, 
that girl lives, they live a really good life. Well, it's not because you're awesome. It's going, yeah, I read this book, and this is, he just tells me how to live. That's all it is, which is funny because all of this is wrapped up in uh, what Paul constantly goes back to. Uh, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. This is the path of Jesus Christ. When we do this, we interact with the Holy Spirit, and we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's having knowledge of what he discer- and discerning what he wants. That's being filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's good. Please hear me. That's the path we're all on. Please walk that path out. Get in your Bible. Listen in prayer. Read other books. Don't be foolish. This is, this is something bigger than Fortnite and Facebook. This is all-encompassing. This is your soul. This is your children. Take this serious and desire to know more and more and more, to grow more and more and more in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Now, the way that this section ends and where I'm going to finish is kind of bizarre. Um, it, and again, Paul is so like, it's a ping pong ball a little bit. So let me read this, verses uh, 12, at least through 14. He says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has uh, become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest uh, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Let's keep going, actually, to 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am here, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is really weird. Paul now is saying, so I'm in prison. And it's to advance, advance the gospel, which we'll come back to in a second. And what has happened is now that I'm in prison, there are more people proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are more people sharing the way of the kingdom. There are more people doing that. And then he says, some people are doing it the right way with proper motives. Some people are doing the wrong way with improper motives. And then he goes on to say, either way, I don't care. Now, it feels weird. That feels really weird to go, wait a minute, if someone's preaching the gospel for the wrong reason, we should do something. Now, uh, there's a few ways, I don't want to spend too much time on this because I don't think this is the point of the whole text, but um, there's one, uh, N.T. Wright brings up an idea that what, what, um, what ultimately Paul's trying to get at is because Paul's in prison now, people now are talking about what Paul believes, almost like water cooler talk. Like, oh, yeah, you hear what Paul, Paul says this, Paul believes this. And, and by kind of happenstance, they themselves are telling about this new way of life, the, the way of Jesus Christ, right? I think possible, but I don't know if that's the case. I will say this. Um, it's easy for us in our uh, modern day to look at Every prosperity gospel, the pros- uh, Creflo Dollars, the Joel Olsteins, the Benny Hens of the world, and call them out. But let me just say you this. That junk is in me. That junk is in me. I want you to like me. I don't want to ever get up here and be terrible at what I do. And so there are moments when I've got to be able to say something, or anybody who gets up here and says something, there's a, f- a little bit of fear of man that you go, if I say this, that I believe God has predestined people, like, half the people are going, wait, what? Right? Like, like, there's a fear that I could be doing this for. And so, it's real. I want you to know it is absolutely real. 
It exists. It's, it's, a, it's a fight to continue to say, this is what the Bible says. And how many conversations over the last four years people have said, I'm out, I don't care, you believe this, you said this. That's hard. That, that takes a toll on your soul a little bit. But here's what Paul inevitably, wherever, whatever it means, if, it, if it's that, if it's the prosperity gospel preachers, or it's what N.T. Wright says, here's what uh, Paul says. I don't care as long as Christ is proclaimed. And so let me just finish our time with this. Wherever you are on the spectrum of growing in Jesus Christ, wherever you are on the spectrum of continuing to be made complete because of Jesus Christ, everything we do is for the proclamation of Christ. Everything that happens to us is meant to, and I quote, advance the gospel. Josh Butler uh, at Tempe, this is where I'll finish. He shared a story when he was in Vietnam. And he went to a a small rural village. And in this rural village, um, there were men and women who still had like bruises from people that came into the village once a month and just beat them half to death. Some people were killed and just were beating people because they were Christian. And so uh, Josh Butler sitting in these meetings and he goes, well, let's pray that the persecution stops. And the pastor in that moment goes, no, 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 no. Let's not pray that the persecution stops. Let's pray that God's glorified in it. And so hear me. Everything that happens to you, every time you pass that piece of paper at work, every time you interact with a kid in class, every time you go through pain, every time you go through suffering, every time you experience questioning, every time you experience highs, you buy the house, you get married, everything that you do on your journey with Jesus Christ is to advance the gospel. That is Christianity. That is Christianity. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that um, we would hear Philippians 1 well, that we would be mindful of the fact that um, you began a good work within us and that you'll be the one who completes it. We feel like we're just, we're honestly like slowing you down. We feel like we continue to mess up so much. This work is never going to be complete, but your righteousness is far greater. Uh, Your grace is far greater than our sin. And so... Uh, we're grateful for that. And, and, and because of that, we continue to press on to know you more. We, we desire to love you more and more. And we want to know more about you. We want to know more what you want. And then we can approve. We can see, oh, this is what you like and this is what you don't want. And then as we do that, we will become more and more blameless because of your righteousness. You've already given us what you're going to make us because of justification. And we're so grateful for that. I pray that no matter where any of us are on that journey, as followers of Jesus Christ, our entire lives would be to proclaim the gospel, that we would advance the gospel, that Christ would be proclaimed. It would not be our own stature, our own uh, ego, our own pride, but it would be your name proclaimed amongst the nations. Help us do that well. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.